Welcome to the Well-Seasoned Librarian Podcast. This is Season 2, Episode 14. Today, I had the pleasure of talking to one of my fellow writers on Medium, Patricia Joseph. She is a wonderful writer and someone who I've read um, many of her articles. Um, I first discovered her when she wrote about her potato salad article that was very popular on Medium. And from then on, I became a fan, and I just thought I'd reach out and uh, see if she was eager to be on the show at all, and she was. So I was really happy to have her on the show. And I'm so grateful that she accepted because I had a wonderful conversation with her. And although I just finished talking to her, I would love to have her back on again and get a chance to talk to her more. So I hope she'll be on the show again. Without further ado, we'll go right to the interview, and on we go. Welcome to the Well-Seasoned Librarian Podcast. Today I'm speaking with writer Patricia Joseph. Patricia, thank you for being on the show. Uh, thank you so much, Dean. I really uh, appreciate the uh, the invitation. I'm a, pl- a pleasure to have you. Um, I really love getting to read what you've written on Medium and other forums. Um, for our listeners, though, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Okay. Well, uh, I'm a, a wife and a mother of four millennials. Uh, I'm also a, a real estate agent uh, with uh, EXP uh, Realty. Uh, and I'm also a, a health communications uh, specialist with a um, well-renowned uh, public health agency, but I won't <laughs> mention that name. Okay. Um, mm-hmm. That's that's a pretty impressive. Uh, I, you, like me, have a lot of kids, millennials, so oh, yeah. they keep us on our toes. Yes, they do. How did you come to writing? Well, I've always been creative. I mean, I, I remember uh, as a little girl, I would um, make my own greeting cards. Me too. And, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so, I mean, it was just a natural um, progression. Um, I never intended to actually uh, be a, a, a writer. Uh, I just sort of went with my passions. Um, but I decided to, you know, after, you know, my children, uh, were, you know, older and I was able, you know, to have a little time back to myself, I decided to go back to school, uh, later on in life and, uh, finish my degree. Um, and I got a degree in, uh, health journalism from, uh, UMass. And um, I just really enjoyed uh, all the assignments, uh, the writing assignments. Um, uh, One of my professors, I remember he had wrote on one of my papers, he said, oh, you're such a great storyteller, which I never considered myself uh, as such. And, but that sort of like always stuck with me. And um, uh, with one of my business uh, ventures, I decided to, uh, start a blog. Uh, initially, it was a, a healthy food blog. Uh, but when I became a real estate agent, um, I wanted a way to be able to provide information about real estate, uh, as well as incorporate my passions for, you know, food and healthy living. And that resulted uh, in a blog, a lifestyle blog that I have now. I want to ask you, um, as somebody who has been a food journalist, or not food journalist, sorry, health journalist, um, how do you feel about all the stuff that's out on the internet that's not real journalism that's being, because there's a lot of pseudoscience on the internet, 
and a lot of people that I think mean well, but just blunder through and they're not really journalists. How do you feel about all that being out there as well? Well, I mean, it's kind of scary. I mean, because uh, most people, they do take that information as credible news. And uh, my advice is to always look to credible sources yeah. uh, for that type of information uh, when it relates to making health decisions for you and your family. Yeah, I mean, there's, it's such a cacophony of voices out there, and it's really confusing sometimes when you look up specific articles. As a librarian, I try and urge people to look through vetted, vetted resources and not mm -hmm. just like, you know, just somebody who's, you know, that has no authority just talking, you know. I mean, even I, when I write about recipes, I'm always quick to hasten to add that I'm not a chef. I'm not mm -hmm. a professional. I'm just mm -hmm. writing this, you know. But yeah, it's, I think it's tough for people to kind of sift through everything and find the real journalism out there, but it is out yeah. there. Yeah, it really is. And, you know, I myself, I, I generally, uh, you know, rely on, you know, information, especially when it comes to health. First is, you know, uh, CDC. Right. Um, but then, um, you know, CNN or, you know, the New York Times. I mean, you know, those are credible, you know, sources uh, that I tend tend to rely on for that type of information. Yeah. Now you've been on Medium for a while and you're one of the many writers that I read on there regularly. Um, I always look forward to your articles. What's been your experience with writing on Medium? Um, it's been interesting, I'll <laughs> say. Uh, <laughs> I sort of stumbled uh, upon it uh, as a reader, actually. Um, I was like, wow, this is a really interesting platform. Uh, I enjoyed uh, the many articles that I read. So I decided, you know, to actually become a paid member, um, especially when I started reading so much. And then you get that message that says, oh, you've reached your limit. Right. Uh, I had that so too. Like, yeah. So I was like, okay, well, you know what? I, $5, it's, it's worth it. And so when I, at that time, I did not realize that uh, Medium paid uh, its writers. Yeah. And so when I discovered that, I was like, hmm, okay, well, that's, that's really interesting. Well, let me, you know, give it a try. And um, so, you know, the initial start um, was somewhat sort of uh, shocking to me, I guess, because the readership, um, I, I guess I sort of expected for my readership to, to be greater than it was at that, at that time. Um, I was like, oh, well, maybe I'm not as good a writer as I think I am, but it, it's not really that. And so, um, you know, I, I, I just sort of decided that, okay, you know what? I'm not really going to worry about how many people read my articles or how much money I make. It's really all about me just having a voice. And so even though in, at the beginning, uh, just thinking about, oh, I could get paid uh, you know, for writing this article, I just don't even think about that anymore. I just think about this is a platform uh, that gives me a voice. And so um, I'm not one of your uh, regular writers where you know, I'm cranking out you know, five to 10 articles a week because my lifestyle just, you know, can't handle that. Right. Uh, 
but I'm, I'm a writer that I'm very connected to my emotions. Right. And so even in, you know, um, uh, on my profile, I say, I, I write about those moments that move me, uh, which is what I do. And so um, I, I have books, uh, I have uh, papers with a list of article and story ideas. I have, you know, a note, you know, notes on my phone uh, of story ideas. Um, some I've completed, some I haven't. But when I get that, when I'm moved and I, I, I get that moment that propels me to write, then I write. Well, that brings on a, another question because um, I wanted to find out about you because you, a lot of people on Medium are like one trick ponies. They write about one thing, like they, they write about politics or they write about sports or movies, but they don't really branch out and stuff. But you write, you're all over the place. You write about food, um, racial issues, daily practices. What inspires you to write? My life. I mean, that, that's what I use as inspiration. It, it's my life. I mean, I write about those things that I'm passionate about. And um, number one, it, it is food. Uh, it is uh, racial equality. Um, it's uh, healthy living. Um, so, and I remember reading, I had, um, had, had signed up for a newsletter for a Neiman Storyboard. Mm -hmm. Have you heard of that? I don't think so. Okay. Oh, absolutely. A wonderful newsletter. I mean, they really <laughs> give uh, great uh, advice. It's actually geared to, uh, to writers. And um, I remember reading one of the, the, uh, the stories in there. And the, the advice was to mine, M-I-N-E, mine your life. Yeah, I like that. And I was like, yeah, because if nothing else, I do know <laughs> about my own life. Yeah. And so it's just a matter of taking those things in your life and connecting them to a bigger picture so, like that, that. Others, so that others can relate to that. And so I do try to uh, use that uh, advice uh, when I'm writing uh, my articles. Yeah, I think it's funny too, because I think you mentioned earlier um, that like you could write for a long time and not really get many hits. And then suddenly one day you got like 50 hits. And it's weird because I think a lot of it is the fact that we're, we're on a platform that's on a algorithm. And if people click one thing, then suddenly they're seeing all that stuff. Like I can never really feel like I can control what articles I'm getting. Mm -hmm. I have my favorites that I click and I can see those, but I think there's a lot of clickbait that gets put out there oh, yeah. and a lot of stuff that's like very controversial because that yeah. gets all the hits. So yeah. Uh, yeah. And I can't, uh, honestly, I, I, I just don't have the, <laughs> the brain power to actually, you know, do that. Um, you know, the clickbait and I just want to put out good content. Um, yeah. I just want to put me, I guess, um, on a page and hopes that others can relate to it. I always try to at least make sure that what I'm writing, um, you know, it's valuable to someone else. 
uh, and it, it's interesting that, you know, you mentioned about, you know, you just never know about <laughs> what kind of views or clicks yeah. you're going to get on any of your articles. Like, you know, the, one of the recent articles I wrote about um, the pioneer woman and the potato salad. It's gotten yeah. like 1400 views, which I was like, wow. I mean, I never would have imagined that many people viewing that article. And I think maybe about 400 people so far have read it, which is great. And, and honestly, even if one person read it, I'm honored uh, because that means that they took time out of their day and read uh, my words and they thought that they were important enough to take that time. And I do appreciate that. So that's how I try to, to approach my writing. I think the potato salad uh, article is the first time I read you. And I, th I think that's what got me into your work. But it is strange because like I've had times where I've written like 20 articles in a month and gotten like $5 and then I'll write nothing and I'll get $50. I'm like, this is crazy. It know, makes it no is, sense. It makes, it makes absolutely no sense. <laughs> and um, <laughs> so, I mean, I'm just along for, um, the ride, I guess you can say, um, too. and just the opportunity to be able to uh, express myself. I, I think that uh, one nice thing about medium is that you can find a tribe. You can find yeah. your tribe. Absolutely. Uh, your writing may not appeal to everyone and that's okay. Yeah. There's I nothing totally wrong agree. with that. But if you can connect with those who feel the same way that you do, and I got a lot of responses on that one article about the potato salad. Um, oh, yeah. I didn't realize that, that <laughs> so many people were that passionate <laughs> as I am about potato salad, but they are. Oh yeah. Uh, it's one of those things that, you know, um, either your mom or somebody in your family makes the best potato salad. So um, those were the type of responses that I got like, my mom she does this and um i think we've all had that bad potato salad moment where you've gone to like a potluck or somebody's house and you uh, you put a fork full of it in your mouth and you have stop and your brain says absolutely not i know because it, i mean you had made an, a comment <laughs> about that and i was like oh my god i just that could not even imagine i mean it, it that is just one of those sacred dishes uh, in my family and too, so yeah. Actually, really do judge people <laughs> by the type of potato salad that they make. I had a friend who made potato salad, and I would go visit her, and she'd have me over for dinner every once in a while. And whenever I'd leave, I'd say, I would very sheepishly say, "Could you let me have a container of potato salad to take home?" And I would never do that with anything else, but it was so good mm. that I was like, "Okay, I've got to like you know do this." Mm -hmm. Now you um, are a real estate agent, as you mentioned, and you write about it a bit in your blog, Real Home Matters. Can you tell us a bit about your work as a real estate agent and your blog, Real Home Matters? Okay. Uh, well, I mean, basically, you know, it's, you know, helping uh, buyers and, and, and sellers in their, um, their real estate goals. Uh, and so, but my blog uh, gives me a, a platform where I can reach more people and provide information about, you know, whether you're buying or selling a home, 
um, other things related, you know, to a home? How do you fix it up? Um, you know, how do you find contractors? Um, you know, so I just go through, you know, all aspects of uh, actually uh, buying or owning a home. Now, um, you've written many impressive articles, but because we're largely a food-related program, I mean, this podcast mainly, I want to touch on one that I really thought was poignant, especially because I see its sentiments echoed all over social media. The idea behind the article discussed food insecurity and how much food writing seems to be devoid of the fact that many Americans are food insecure, which I wholeheartedly agree with, and that's a big issue with me too. Can we talk about that for a bit? Yeah, so... When I, when I wrote that article about uh, food insecurity, actually, um, I wrote it from the perspective of my own background uh, because I grew up poor. I grew up in the housing projects of Washington, uh, D.C. Uh, my mom, uh, she was widowed um, when I was three. Actually, my, di- my dad died when I was three. And so she had to raise five children alone. And I saw her, um, you know, struggle uh, in trying to, you know, put food on the table. Uh, She did uh, have public assistance. And (laughs) I do remember that uh, because she would have me, you know, to go and pick up the packages. I don't know if anyone remembers this. Uh, At that time, they would, you know, give you, uh, you know, the uh, foods like, you know, in this like brown, wrapped in like brown paper, Uh, you know, the blocks of cheese and, you know, the powdered milk. And so I grew up, you know, on that. And um, that really actually is what keeps me grounded. And so I I do um, empathize with anyone who has to struggle with not having enough food. And and to me, I, I just can't imagine that being uh, in a country uh, as rich as America is, and there are people who don't have enough to eat. And I I just, I don't understand that. I mean, we're not a third world country. And so um, I I just really, you know, wish, and especially, uh, you know, with COVID hitting and we seeing that um, most Americans who, were, you know, low income, you know, they were really impacted, Um, you know, not, you know, the growing uh, food lines. I mean, that's, I I, I just, I don't get it. I I, I just really don't get it why there are not enough resources for, you know, people, you know, to have, you know, the food that they need. It's crazy because I've seen so much food waste where produce has been wasted. I remember um, when I was in high school, we were not doing great. My family did not make a lot. And I remember we would go and we would um, sometimes go, we knew we lived in a farming community and um, the farmers would let us sometimes, if we went on the, after they had gone through with the machines and picked the potatoes, we can go get our own potatoes Mm -hmm. because there was always some left over. And it's funny how often, and I've talked to farmers and they're frustrated about how much there's food waste with where they can't sell stuff fast enough or they can't get it to market fast enough and stuff just goes to waste. And I know a woman here in the Bay area who has um, a farm that she's, she's gotten where she 
is able to use the land to, to raise food for food banks locally and provide it to schools. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think there are a lot of programs where people are starting to, you know, take notice of things like that and they're starting to mm -hmm. act, but there's still so much food insecurity. I, I know that many areas of the Bay Area where I live, you if you live somewhere that's a fairly poor demographic, you are not going to live near a grocery store or a mm -hmm. farmer's market or anything like mm -hmm. that. So if you want food, you got to buy it at the gas station, mm -mm. which is ridiculous because it's always really expensive. Oh yeah, and it's unhealthy. Yeah, yeah, it's never like really yeah, good so, food. Yeah, yeah. So you, you, I mean, you pretty much are when you're living in those areas. You, I mean, it's a food desert. Yeah, pretty much. Um, but uh, I do remember reading an article. I believe it may have been on New York Times where, when COVID first hit, that. Um, in many places uh, across the country, uh, there were people who started to put out refrigerators out on sidewalks. Had you seen that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I love yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, for anyone to, and it's like, wow, we have really gotten to this point, you know, that people, you know, they, they don't have food. And yeah. so they have to find it wherever it's available. And so there were people who saw the need for that. And, um, but of course, you know, uh, because of, you know, food safety issues, you know, many of them had to, to stop. Um, but, but that's another, you know, area that's kind of like dear. Yeah. Uh, close to my heart as well. Yeah. It's just, I, I'm really passionate and I think that more people are speaking up about it, but it's something that we really have to still address in this country because the inequality of food availability and good food to young kids that need it, or, you know, even adults or older people that need it. It's just really, it's glaring. It's glaring. It is. It is. Uh, you know, also it, it makes me think about this, um, this article that I had read several years ago, it was in the Washington Post, but I actually, you know, saved that article because I was struck by the writer. It was about a small town that was um, in Texas, but it was near the um, Mexican border. And um, in that town, there was an increase in children with type two diabetes. And of course, this was an area, there were no decent grocery stores, you know, no farmer's markets. And many of the children, their breakfast for the day was to go to the corner store and to get a bag of snacks that was similar to like Cheetos. And then they would have, um, like melted cheese over top of the snack. And of course, then it would be a, you know, a soda pop, you know, and that was their breakfast. And so, and, and the healthcare workers, you know, uh, who were visiting many of these families, you know, to provide them information uh, on, uh, you know, resources that they could get. And they found that, you know, many of these children had type two diabetes. And so they would have to, you know, help, you know, the mother, you know, to, um, you know, give insulin to the child. I mean, 
what that's you know that's it's it's something I'm seeing know. so oh, often. Sleepless. Huh? Yeah, I mean, because you could buy soda for cheap, but juice is expensive. Oh. And even in many areas, the drinking water is not viable. I mean, let's not even get started on Michigan. Oh, I know. I know. And and you know what? That's that that now you just touched on <laughs> another topic that I'm very passionate about because, like you said, the unhealthy foods very accessible i mean you can get it any place but the more healthier foods they come with a large price and i just yeah. don't understand that myself there are certain foods that i just won't buy i am not going to spend eight dollars for a pint of strawberries organic strawberries i'm just no. not i mean no, i'm me just either. not and it just bothers me that why is it everybody can't have access to healthy foods at a reasonable cost? And they're talking now how, you know, the cost of groceries have really gone up. But can you, but then we look at people who have limited resources, they have limited, you know, low income. We look at them, we point the finger and say, oh, okay, well, you know, you should be eating better. Okay, but have you really shown that person how they can eat better on the income that they have when they can go to the fast food place and get, you know, two burgers for $2 yeah. when maybe they have $20 for the week or, I mean, it's, it's just crazy. I mean, I, you know, it's, it's just crazy. Um, I mean, I've, I've lived that myself where, um, I've had $5 and I'm like, I can get my son and I, although I think McDonald's is more expensive now. So you can't really do that anymore. But mm -hmm. at the time you could get like, I could get a couple burgers for each of us and that would fill us for the evening. But like, that's really common for a lot of parents. It is. I mean, it is. And and it is so, cheaper. But yeah. So, you know, it's okay. On one hand, it's okay. I've, I've got, you know, $40 you know, left to, you know, feed a family. And on this hand, okay, I, I know I can get, you know, what, <laughs> like I said, you know, three meals for, you know, $5. Okay, that leaves me with $35. Uh, I mean, I mean, what choices are we giving them? I mean, there are not many choices. It's either yeah. you eat unhealthy and, you know, on the money that you have, or, I mean, there's just no, there's just no other choice. Yeah. I, I mean, I, 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 you know, I, I don't get it, Dean. It, that really bothers me. Uh, the cost of healthy foods. Um, I, myself, I, I do remember, um, when my husband and I, you know, we first got married and, you know, started our family and our incomes were not what they are now. And so I had to be, you know, very um, uh, cautious uh, with the, you know, the groceries and, you know, the money that I spent mm -hmm. uh, because I knew that, you know, of course, we, you know, you have to you know, pay for housing, you know, you got to, yeah. you know, utilities and, you know, gas in the car. It's a lot. 
And so, you know, even though, I mean, I've been, you know, have pretty much led a, a vegetarian lifestyle, you know, my whole adult life, uh, I've raised my children like that. And so, and what I learned is that I had to buy the best with what I could afford yeah. at that time. So if that meant that, um, you know, I had to buy the canned vegetables or the frozen vegetables instead of the fresh produce, that's what I would do. And then yeah. um, I would just, you know, pour off, you know, the, the liquid in the cans uh, and rinse them off and, 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 you know, add in some olive oil and, you know, to try and reduce um, the sodium. So, you know, there were things that, you know, I, I realized that um, I could do even, even on my limited income. Yeah. But it's not easy. I mean, it's just not easy. Well, I mean, too, like when you go to places like Whole Foods, they have such an array of vegetables that it's obscene. And, or even like some of the higher level stores, I don't know where you are in the United States as far as, I know everybody has different stores, but we have Safeway out here and Safeway has okay. a lot of Safeway. vegetables mm -hmm. and a really a wider range. But if you go to Walmart, you have like corn, yep. carrots, you know, potatoes, that's it. You know, it's not a lot. It's not a lot. Mm -mm. And yeah. it's, I, I see my own, my stepkids grew up. I'm, I'm cooking things like kohlrabi They've never heard of that. I'm making mm. something with rhubarb. They have no idea what rhubarb is. Mm. There's all these vegetables and fruits that most mm -hmm. kids in America are not even aware of. And it's not a crime even. because there's not as much farming going on. Farming is a big farm. Like I, I talked to a guy last week who told me that 90% um, of the wheat in America is grown for McDonald's hamburger buns. 90%. What? Yeah. Wow. It's terrifying. It is terrifying. It is terrifying. And so, and on the flip side, with the unhealthy foods that you we eat, the unhealthy diets, of course, that brings on other things, yeah. like chronic illnesses, right. chronic diseases, which a lot can be controlled by your diet. Right. And I don't know. It, it, it's just a catch 22. I mean, I, it, it's just, it's baffling. It's, it's really baffling. I've had a few authors on here that have written cookbooks because they were having chronic illness and they had to change mm. their diet because of mm -hmm. it. And I, I think that we're not really aware as a country, how much we're eating ourselves into the hospital. Yes. Exactly. And I include myself in that, you know, I, yeah. I'm, I have, yeah, I'm, I'm improving my diet, but I still have mm -hmm. work to do. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. And I can say too, I mean, you know, I'm not a vegan. I probably never will be uh, because I grew up on uh, Southern food. But uh, once I became vegetarian, I learned how to make those Southern foods healthier. Mm -hmm. And um, so, but I try to limit uh, like my sodium, uh, my fat intake. Um, and also I, I pay close attention to moderation. Yeah. Uh, you know, like my husband, when I fix his meals, I, you know, I prepare his foods and put them on just a, a, a regular dinner plate, but mine is smaller. Mm -hmm. 
And I do that for a reason because I don't want to um, put more on my plate. Yeah. Um, and, and, and try to use that to help me to uh, moderate and, um, you know, portion control my foods. Are there any um, vegetarian authors that you like that you want to recommend to our audience? Uh, I would say uh, one is uh, Bryant Terry. Um, I know that there's a, a woman that I follow on Instagram. Uh, she's actually a vegan, uh, but Tabitha Brown, who just came out uh, with a new book and, um, you know, I follow her. And, um, and I think there, there are, you know, a lot of other authors out there. It, it, I mean, it's just that lifestyle now that I think that a lot of people have, have really found um, that there are a lot of health benefits to it uh, with reducing uh, your meat intake, you know, definitely including much more um, fruits and vegetables. Um, I know for one of my articles that I wrote on uh, medium, um, I had reference uh, Michael Pollan, uh, you know, eat real food, eat, eat the foods that, you know, your grandmothers and your great grandmothers ate. Um, so, yeah. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. I remember when I was younger, when we had food uh, celebrities or people that wrote cookbooks, it was always like in the French school, like Julia Child, um, Graham Care, the Galloping Gourmet. Um, what's his name? Uh, I can't remember his name, but, the, but basically it was largely middle class or upper class white people that all kind of came from the French school of cooking. Mm -hmm. Do you think that there's been any change over the years in the diversity in food writing or has, has there been any improvement do you think, or is it still pretty much dominated by the European school of cooking? Uh, it has, it has changed um, still pretty much uh, dominated by European cooking. Um, and I, I really think that we, we have to, in order, you know, cause here in America, we have to recognize that we do have a racial problem. Yeah. Um, but I think in that recognition, there are stories to be told and we have to tell the true stories. We can't just tell one story and ignore another right even if the other story um makes us feel a certain way that doesn't negate the fact that it's still a story that needs to be told yeah and so that's the issue that i have is that 
African-Americans who made great contributions to the culinary world are not given the same recognition. As a matter of fact, um, I was watching a, a, a video and it was about James Hemings, who was the chef for Thomas Jefferson. Of course, he was trained in French cooking, right? but he also was the one who created a dish that most Americans love, and that's macaroni and cheese. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe the and most popular like, dish in America. I would I would argue that might be one of the most popular dishes that we have in America. Exactly. Ex but how many people know that? I, I didn't know, know it till you just said it. I actually didn't know how that. many people know. Honestly, I just learned of that. And I was floored. I was like, oh, my goodness. So there are a lot of stories about people of color who have made great contributions, but they are not given the same recognition. And I really think that that's a real grave uh, injustice, not to just African-Americans, but all Americans. Yeah, I mean, I think I, I remember growing up seeing people on TV shows and it would be white cooks cooking soul food hmm. and talking authoritatively about soul food. And, it, and I didn't think about it at the time. But recently, when I've heard people talking about things like that, I was like, oh, shit, you know, and it really kind of like brings it home to my mind how how horrible that was and how I can't imagine watching something like that and going like, are you kidding me? <laughs> exactly, exactly. I mean, the, the perfect definition, cultural appropriation. You're taking something original and presenting those ideas without giving credit to the original owners. Absolutely. That's exactly. Yeah, that's exactly what it and it's and it's not and it's not right. It, it's really no. not right. Um, <laughs> so, uh, you know, I go back to that that article again um, about the potato salad. I mean, even though, you know, African-Americans, you know, we did not actually, you know, create that. But we we largely uh, had a lot to do with perfecting and and putting the flavor and soul into it, and um, you know, and I've I've just you know realized that maybe a part of me being on Medium and and having a you know that platform to which gives me a voice is to make sure that people do know about the history of food and African-Americans and how much they have uh, contributed um, to American uh, cuisine. Um, just recently I had watched, and I don't know if you got a chance to, the, the docuseries uh, on Netflix, yeah. High on the Hog. Yeah, I saw the whole thing, I loved it absolutely wonderful i mean actually i mean the first episode i will admit that i cried i mean yeah. i i really i boohooed on that one <laughs> um but uh for me it was it was very um eye-opening uh but also very educational and it also made me 
I guess feel very proud too. You know, that um, I come from a people who have made a lot of contributions to American cuisine in, in this country. Yeah. And, um, and that is a lot, you know, to be proud of. And um, yeah, I mean, I think that most people are not aware of it. And, and I'm glad there's shows like High on the Hog that can kind of point that out. And, and it, it was a wonderfully done series. I mean, I thought very. the fact that they did it episodically and they're going to bring more back too. So it's not yeah, over. I, yeah, I saw that. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. I like yeah. that they highlight many authors that talk about the issues too. They had Michael Twitty on there and I got to see him. I follow him. Do you follow him? Yeah, I follow him on Twitter and Instagram. Yeah, I've yeah. read I read all of his books except for his newest book. Um, I haven't read that one yet on rice, but I've read everything okay. else. And, and you know what, that, watch. that you talked about rice because I didn't know that about the Gold Coast and rice and how it became so popular here in America, you know, with the slaves that came from the West Coast of Africa. I mean, that, and I mean, that was like really eye-opening uh, for me. Yeah, I didn't either. I mean, it's just so, I, I'm a, I love food history. And for me to read these books, it's just a pleasure, but it also is kind of like, it, it exposes some ugly truths about America yeah. that are, you know, they're hard to take, but they're important to take, I think, so. Yeah, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. Um, you mentioned in your articles, um, vegetarian cooking and you've talked about vegetarianism um now do you think there's a sea change in food writing on vegetarian topics because i'm seeing more and more authors on medium who are vegetarian mm -hmm. and who are talking about it and there seems to be a really kind of a resurgence of interest in vegetarian cooking mm -hmm. and, and mm -hmm. vegan cooking in america do you think this is like becoming a big kind of a renaissance right now for it yeah 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 i do i i, I do uh, and, and honestly, I, I kind of believe that the um, millennial generation is driving a lot of that uh, yeah. because they are seen as the, the generation of social change. And so they want to uh, live their lives with a purpose. Yeah. And so, and it kind of reminds me of um, uh, the generation of the 60s. Um, even though I'm a child of the sixties, but I was, you know, very young then. So I wasn't like of age to go out, you know, and, you know, do protesting. Um, but that was a generation, uh, for social change. And I think we are seeing that, that today. Absolutely. I mean, it's crazy because we can get food now that tastes just like meat. You really can't tell the difference. And Honestly, uh, half the time I probably don't care because if it tastes like meat, that's good enough for me. I don't really have to have meat. So I think a lot of people are starting to really rethink it, like because it makes you kind of ask, then do I actually have to eat meat? Then, mm -hmm, like, mm -hmm. if I'm eating something that I like but it's not meat, you're like, then maybe I don't actually have to have it at all. <laughs> exactly, exactly, and um, it just makes me think about um, this restaurant. Uh, that's here in Atlanta, it's on uh, Buford Highway, which is sort of like a, a Mecca of ethnic cuisine. And this restaurant is actually a vegan Chinese. Oh, wow. Which, and I tried the, oh my goodness. Just, I'm like, wow. <laughs> and and so, and, and 
you know, the same names that you would find, you know, on a Chinese uh, food menu, it was the same, but everything was uh, tofu. Oh. And what? it was a very interesting uh, food experience. I feel like everybody um, is learning to cook tofu well, because when I was young in the 80s, um, I remember tofu being cooked and it wasn't so good. It was like people didn't know what to do with it. So it was tasted like tofu still. But I just talked to um, a few weeks back, I talked to one of Medium's writers, Melissa Matthews, and she had a recipe for tofu that made me drool. Like mm. I was like, I want to eat this. This sounds really good. And I think that a lot of people over the years, if you do it enough, you start getting, you learn the techniques and the knack for doing it. Mm-hmm. Uh, that also makes me think about a, uh, another one of my articles that's on Medium uh, about cooking tofu, which actually I just started cooking uh, because I, I had not really like learned like the proper technique um so I wasn't really like all that interested I'm like you know I had had it before and it wasn't like that good (laughs) so um I never ventured into you know trying to perfect it and my youngest son who loves Asian foods he's like oh mom you know you should you know start cooking you know tofu and so what happened was I went out and I found the the recipe from Mark Bittman yeah who's on medium and uh his recipe called for actually freezing the tofu first then boiling it for 15 minutes and so I also (coughs) found a a recipe from this restaurant that's based in upper state uh New York called um Moosewood Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so they had a a recipe for uh, baked tofu. And so what I did was I actually combined both techniques. So anytime I prepare tofu, I freeze it, I boil it for 15 minutes first, and then I um, uh, coat it with, you know, olive oil and my seasonings, and then I bake it in order for it to become crispy. And that's the only recipe that I use for tofu now. Yeah, I think everybody has experiences with something where they have it bad once and they decide that that's never gonna be good again. Exactly, exactly. I, I know people that have had okra and I'm like, well, tell me what you didn't like about it. And they go, it was slimy. I'm like, well, the person who was cooking it probably didn't know what they're doing. Cause my, I've had it many times and it was never slimy. I don't get where the people get it, but I'm like, how was it prepared? They go, it was just boiled in water. And I'm like, well, there you go. That probably mm-hmm. is why, cause that's mm-hmm. what produces the slime in it. But people just get a bad idea about things and then it sticks with them. But then they have it in a restaurant and somebody prepares it well. And they're like, oh my God, where's this been all my life? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I was going to ask you one last question, and I hope this is a fun one. If you could invite 10 people, living or dead, famous or not, to a dinner party, who would you invite and what would you serve? Only 10? Yeah, up to 10, yeah. <laughs> um, well, the first two definitely would be my mother and my grandmother. Um, probably a few of 
my ancestors who may have had the duties of being a cook because that would be interesting to be able to, you know, hear their stories. I would love to have uh, Toni Morrison, oh. uh, Maya Angelou. Oh yeah. Uh, James Baldwin. Wow, that would be, oh boy, that would be a nice dinner yeah. party. Um, the meal would probably be all of the foods that I prepare now that put a smile on my family's face. Uh, number one is my mother's recipe for potato salad. <laughs> um, it's, it's definitely number one. It definitely would be a, a mix of cuisines because I don't just like uh, Southern foods or American foods. I would say my other favorite cuisine is Mediterranean. I could mm. eat Mediterranean food every day. So a Mediterranean gra uh, grain bowl with, um, you know, maybe brown rice, you know, uh, black olives. Um, let's see. Um, my family loves my lasagna, which I make with uh, ground turkey, uh, spinach, um, other vegetables. Um, I mean, I could just go on and on. There's just like so many. I would, and probably the dessert would be my butternut squash pie that I make mm. every year around Thanksgiving. Nice. Which my family loves with a scoop of vanilla ice cream or butter pecan ice nice. cream on top. That sounds delicious. <laughs> I would be now I'm, now I'm hungry. I haven't had lunch yet. Yeah, you may be hungry too. <laughs> that lasagna sounds good too. Well, Patricia, I want to thank you for being on the show. I really oh, enjoy getting a chance to talk to you. Dean, it, it was wonderful. We, we definitely have to do this again. I would. Thank you for listening to my conversation with Patricia Joseph. As I said earlier, I was really happy to get a chance to talk to her, and I would love to have her on the show again, either one-on-one -on -one or get to talk to her in a panel of different medium authors. Please tune in next week. We're going to have author Carl Beckstrand, who is also a publisher, on the show to talk about his children's cookbooks. Until then, happy cooking.